Joel, you want to know something? What? Every now and then, say what the f What the f gives you freedom? Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. If you can't say it, you can't do it. Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Well, today we're going to have the third interview of, I don't know how many interviews it's going to be with Rory McDougall. I don't have much to say in the way of an introduction today. We're still having wonderful weather in Utah. It's uh, t-shirt weather still, and it's uh, October, or excuse me, it's November, I guess, 14th or 15th today. 15th, November 15th today when I'm recording this. I've got to run up to the summer cabin. I've got my electricians up there working, and they ran out of heat. Something happened to my boiler up there, and the heating system's not working. So I've got to run up there right after this interview and see if we can figure out how to get it working again. Uh, it's always something. This boiler's 30 years old, so I don't have a lot of complaints about it. But we really haven't used it that much because we have not spent the winters up there. So we've used it really in the shoulder season, the early spring and the late fall. A lot of deer up in the valley. We saw two bucks when I drove up along with about 20 does. But the elk are still pretty high up. They really have not come back down. So, uh, so much for my elk season. Of course, I've been complaining about that for about three podcasts right now. So, not much else to say. No real new news. No emails from listeners. I wish you guys would write me emails with questions, comments, notes. If you like this podcast, I'm at 49 reviews in iTunes. I'm just trying to get to the 50th review. So, somebody out there, please write me a review. Hold on a second. That's Rory coming through. Rory, are you there? Good, hold on. I've got to turn up your volume here. All right. Talk to me a little more. Okay, yeah. Um, so how's your weather going over there, mate? I was just talking about that. Actually, I'm recording right now. We're going to go do the introduction. I'm really not even going to bother editing this. We'll just go ahead and keep this right on in there. And we'll get on to it. I was just, I was just complaining about it. It's been so warm that the elk haven't come down from the mountain. But I'm, I'm not complaining. It's really extending my building season up at the cabin. But it's uh, t-shirt weather. I was just out wandering around, running around, getting parts this morning for uh, a boiler up at the cabin, and uh, I'm, I'm wearing t-shirts. So it's pretty damn nice right now. What about there in, in jolly old England? What's it like there? Well, yeah, sort of uh, not not quite uh, similar, but we've had a, bit, a lot milder day today. Uh, we're up to about sort of 15 Celsius, and um, you know, yeah, not not too bad. But um, you know, we've got uh, got some weather coming in. I think uh, later on tomorrow, and it's going to get a bit colder for us. But uh, but ultimately, no, not too bad at the moment. Pretty good. Yeah, my daughter's traveling around Spain right now, and she's having a having great weather. She spent some time on a medical volunteer trip to Morocco, and she gave herself a few weeks to kick around Spain before she came home, and she's having great weather too. So, Rory, let's, uh, let's tell the audience what I, how I screwed up last week. So Rory and I, Rory came on at the, the right time, and I said, all right, Rory, let's get into this interview. So I started talking to him and asking him questions. I, pushed, I, pushed the right, I thought I pushed the right button on my recorder, we got into it about well, at least a half an hour. It may have been close to 40 minutes, and I realized I had not been recording anything. So we just said, forget it, and we, <laughs> we're going to try to redo that interview today. So it's, it's not, the, unfortunately, it's not the first time that's occurred, and uh, hopefully I don't make this mistake too many more times. But uh, So, Rory, let's start out where we sort of left off. Last time I need to adjust my levels. I'm a little high. I'll turn my level down. There we go. And the when you the, the last interview we had, you'd sailed from Easter Islands up to Mangav, Mangavera Island, and you'd spent some time there. I've got Google Earth open, so I'm sort of following your trips as we're uh, as we're talking here. There we go. 
and you you stopped in here and let's let's take it from there you pulled into man the uh i guess it's the uh push, push the rewind button from last week yeah yeah exactly <laughs> okay yeah yeah i'm uh, a little um a little harbor or a little town of i think called Rikatia and uh, the island of Mangareva in the Gambia atoll and um so yeah, I pulled in there because I was getting a whole bunch of westerly winds on my way uh, uh, westwards from uh, from Easter Island. So I thought I'd pull in, get some rest and recoup, instead of banging my head against the uh, the windward conditions, and uh, and just get a bit of company as well. It was two weeks at sea, so it was nice uh, to have a break from the single-handed sailing and, uh, and get some company. So I made a la- landfall. Um, at Mangareva, as I think I think I said last time, without chart. So, um, but it uh, it was a good stop. I uh, I met quite a few other single handers that were there as well. So we compared notes, and I met up with some really good local folks that uh, again allowed me just to sort of grab bananas from their trees in the garden and uh, all sorts of fruit and veggies. And uh, it was really interesting to to meet up with some of the locals because they were they were farming. The oysters for the black pearls in the lagoon, right, right, right close by to the uh, to the main harbour there, and uh, they would go out in their boats and pull in these strings of oysters, and then just spend the afternoon power washing them with a with a gener- you know with a with a petrol powered um, pressure washer just to sort of clean off these strings of oysters, so that I guess they would feed quicker and and get cleaner food and and cultivate perhaps more pure oysters or cultivate them quicker. So they were they were actually physically um, tending their strings of oysters, which I thought was um, quite interesting. And uh, I kind of helped out and got to know people that way as well, just by lending a hand. And uh, while I was there, I also wanted to get a little bit more of a better handle on the weather systems because being south, uh, just south of the uh, the, the prevailing sort of southeast trade winds at that time of year, I sort of. Uh, just on the southern edge of them. So every now and again, these depressions and weather systems would roll up from the southern ocean. And I would, obviously I was experiencing some, some changeable conditions. And there was a Met office on um, a French uh, meteorological station up there on, uh, on Mangareva, up on the hill. So I went and saw those guys, and there was a real big help because they had lots of weather faxes and, and synoptic charts and, uh, you know, models of the weather that they could play out in front of me and just give me a good idea of what to expect uh, on the on the way ahead to uh, to Rarotonga and also as I dip further down towards New Zealand, uh, ultimately on, on the end of this sort of leg of the voyage. So, uh, so we're leaving Mangareva. I had a much better idea of uh, being able to play the wind shifts as they came because we got, we got predominantly... Um, easterly winds but uh, perhaps every every week we would get the front come through and it play out with a with a northerly and northwesterly um wind as the front approaches and then a southwester afterwards and so it gave me the confidence just to sort of run off a little bit and not have to point too high and just play the weather front knowing that i you know could sail southwest knowing that once the front passes i can head northwest and regain that sort of position if i need to and um so we, we we headed off from there after about a week's stay in uh, in Mangareva. Now, did you have any hazards to navigation on the route to Rarotonga, or were you pretty much? Did you have plenty of sea room to be able to run off or come up as, as required by the the fronts that came through? What was your navigation? Yeah, we, we were we were fairly uh, fairly open water. We. We were right on the southern edge of the, I think, of the Tuamotus, uh, I believe that sort of uh, large area of uh, coral atolls. And uh, so we uh, we just jogged along underneath most of those. We, did, we came fairly close once or twice to some islands, and I sort of had to keep a good lookout. Um, I was keeping a, you know, a daily um, uh, fix on my sextant and keeping a good dead reckoning watch on the compass, et cetera, et cetera. So... I was able to get a fairly good uh, good idea of where we were most of the time, and uh, once or twice uh, I sighted the very low treetops of palm trees and stuff on these coral atolls, um, just to sort of get a good sight of where we were. But uh, ultimately, we didn't have to zigzag our way through, and and we didn't have any weather systems that came through to really 
blow us onto any lee shores or anything like that so it was actually fairly fairly straightforward sailing did you restock your food at all when you were when you're uh, in the gambier islands only with the fresh fresh foods there france as i said um, a, a while back when i left panama i pretty much had the the, the boat stocked with the dried foods the rice the pasta porridge oats and lentils and beans and all those sorts of things to the staple sort of diet and uh, and whenever I stopped off at these islands I was on the lookout for some fresh fruit and veggies to be able to you know just give me a replenishment of some nutrition and that sort of thing to go along yeah did you have the charts that you needed for Rarotonga as you went along or did you have to pick those up along the way I had most of the charts along the way um because I'd photocopied them from various people, various sources as I went, so I had a I had a, you know one one chart of Easter Island to get there. I think I had a chart of the Pitcairn Islands, and um, I had no charts of Mangareva. So as I said before, I had to sort of just feel my way in there. I had a basic chart of uh, of Rarotonga, and I made a landfall at about sort of a, just after sort of not midnight. So. I, I hove to, or I actually dropped sails and just lay a hull about uh, five miles offshore um, for the rest of the night and just waited wait till sunup and sunrise so that uh, I could eyeball my way safely in. And, uh, and, and when I got to Rarotonga, I found that uh, the main harbour on the northern side, I think it's called Avarua, it's quite a commercial port. But, and, I, and that's where I was heading to. But uh, as I sailed down the coast, I found that there was this really lovely-looking inlet uh, just before it, which is pretty shallow. I don't think many keelboats would be able to get in. Uh, but there was a couple of local skiffs and, uh, and motorboats in there and a, and a big restaurant and quite a sheltered little bay. So I pulled in there and, um, and made that my anchorage while I was in Rarotonga. And uh, in many ways, it was very good because you know, after walking around and seeing some of the boats in in Avarua that were rolling their guts out because uh, there was so much backwash off the main sort of concrete piers um, and it was quite an open open roadstead to the north so so it wasn't that protected but where Cookie was in the um, in the little harbour we had a very comfy comfy stay. Yeah those are volcanic islands aren't they they're not atolls they're big straight volcanoes that come straight up so there's not very many anchorages around Rarotonga that I can see from uh, from Google Earth no, no, there's, there is actually an interesting one, I think, on the southeast corner. Again, if, if you're a shallow draft vessel, there is, I was told by the locals, there's a sort of a pass through the reef on the southeast corner that you can go through, and then you're in this beautiful sort of lagoon with turquoise, sandy water, uh, only about sort of five or six feet de depth, and <coughs> you can shelter in behind reefs and, uh, and that sort of thing in there. But um, I was quite snug where I was up on the sort of north. I guess I was in the northeast corner. And uh, but otherwise, yeah, as soon as you go offshore past the fringing coral reef that uh, is around this this volcanic island, the the depth of the water just plummets. Hmm. Now I'm looking at uh, at uh, Port Ricotea, and I'm just looking at uh, the lagoon there in front of it. And it looks it looks to me like it's a pretty popular. Uh, cruising spot because I'm counting about 15 boats in Google Earth. Well, one, two, three, four, four, maybe about 10, 10 cruising boats. Were there that, were there very many cruising boats when when you were there in Port Ricotea and onward, or were you sort of you know all by yourself? I mean, I know you said you you met other sailors, but were there very many other sailors? Well, when I was in when I was in um, Ricotea, I think it was about uh, a half a dozen of us, about six of us all together. Uh, at the time, and we were all we were all the the privileged um, people to to go and, and visit this place because there was no planes uh, with tourists arriving. There was no guest houses or hotels or anything on the island. So it, the only visitors they saw were uh, boaties that came by. Um, and so it's again, it's rare to find those little sort of outposts. Uh, and, and so it was a real sort of felt like a real privilege to um, to see their way of life and meet those folks out there. But um, no, there was only there was about um, yeah I guess about six of us uh, at that point. 
And then in Rarotonga, I think there was even less. But I was kind of ahead of the schedule, you see, Franz. I was running out of money, so I was sort of getting on down the line on the way down to New Zealand pretty early in the um, in the autumn, sorry, in the spring, in the southern spring. Sort of, it was still really just the winter as I was heading down to New Zealand. So, so you were pushing the we- you were really pushing the weather envelope. It sounds like then. Definitely, yes. Yeah, I, I, by the time I got to Rarotonga and took stock of, of my my money that I had left and the food that I had remaining on, on the boat, I, I knew I sort of had to either two choices, either sort of head down to New Zealand uh, at that point uh, with what I had or, or if I wanted to take time and wait out the weather a bit, I'd have to start looking for work. And in a lot of these islands, uh, the, the work situation is quite tight with you know, work permits and, uh, and that sort of thing. So uh, I decided that I would just sort of head off and, um, and take, take it on the chin, as it were, and, uh, and sort of thought, how bad can it be? <laughs> <laughs> so from Rikatea to Rarotonga, how many miles and how long did that take you? That's 1,500 miles. And it was a two-week journey. Um, and I think, as we've said in the past, all of my uh, my ocean crossings on Cookie always seem to average out at about 100 miles a day, given the good days, the you know the the, the becalm days, and uh, and you know even with the contrary winds and that sort of thing, it all sort of averaged out on the whole pretty much exactly 100 miles a day once uh, once each voyage had been um, sort of knocked off. Uh, so. Yep, it took us two weeks to get to Rarotonga, and uh, and then I think I stayed in Rarotonga about about another week uh, before I then headed off down to to New Zealand. So now, didn't you tell me last time that in Rarotonga you went to the library and were able to get some some mm-hmm. navigational information that way? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I uh, I had I had I was banking on meeting up with some other other boats that had charts that we could either swap or I could photocopy, but uh, the chance just never sort of really arose to get some good, um, good arrival charts of the, of the Northern area of New Zealand. So when I was in uh, Rarotonga, I went to the library and uh, just went ahead and just sketched out of a library book, out of an Atlas, the, uh, the geographical sort of idea of, of the coastline and the islands, offlying islands uh, from sort of Auckland north, which is where I was wanting my my landfall to be. And by the look of the atlas, it looked like uh, there was very few sort of outlying dangers as far as reefs and and uh, and too many sort of uncharted rocks or anything like that. Everything seemed to be pretty well in in place, and and it seemed to be pretty high as well. Uh, it didn't look to be so, too much under the water, although bit hard to tell when it's just an atlas and not a chart but uh, but i thought you know i'll go as i have done before make a landfall do it in daylight so that you can actually of course uh, eyeball your way in and uh, get a good view as you go so so yeah that was my uh, my charts down to new zealand i had a passage chart and on on it there was a about an inch high tip of new zealand from auckland north was that right down on the bottom left hand corner of my pacific chart so I, I knew I could get down there, and then I had the atlas uh, sketch to be able to uh, home in on where I wanted to get to. All right. So tell me the route. So your next landfall from Rarotonga was going to be New Zealand. Is that right? That's right, yeah. I had a, um, a long-standing girlfriend that I wanted to catch up with uh, that lived in Auckland. And uh, I'm an Australian by birth. Um, even though I grew up in the UK, so I've got the luxury of having a dual nationality and um, I had my Aussie passport with me, so getting down to New Zealand meant that I could stay and work for a while and and uh, see how my relationship went with uh, with my old girlfriend and that sort of thing. So I was fairly fairly keen to to get down there. And as I said, I was pushing the envelope with the winter because uh, it was about August time, um, late July, early August that I set off. So it was just just after midwinter really for the southern ocean so i was pushing it um that's the equivalent of sort of going out into the bay of biscay in um in sort of march time february march time of, of our winter our northern winter so so i i was kind of expecting to get some rough stuff and uh, and i certainly did as well in fact it was my 
my toughest trip, uh, I think, of the uh, of the round the world voyage that uh, that led down to New Zealand. So let me ask you a question. I'm thinking of a catamaran, and I'm thinking of my boat. And in the summer, I'm I'm looking for shade all the time. But in a catamaran, you unless you get down in the pontoons, you really don't have much shade. Or did you rig up some sort of a sunshade for yourself? Um, at some points, when it got really calm. Because obviously, once you once you've got a bit of breeze and a boat sailing along, that sort of thing, then most of the time there's a bit of shade and uh, and shelter just from just from the sails, uh, you know, from the from the sun. But um, there were occasions when it got uh, you, you you were becalmed, and so you took the sails down and then out on deck with Cookie. Of course, I'd have no bimini or or cockpit awning. Um, she's was a fairly basic boat, so so what I would do is i just string up a, a line across between the two uh, aft shrouds and then hang a hang my spare jib over the uh, over the line there and uh, just rig up a quick temporary sunshade if i needed to but on the whole when i was sailing i could either sit sit in either hull so if the sun was beating down from port or starboard i could choose which hull to to, to sit in and, uh, and I had the little spray dodger canopy that came up over the hatchway. So I had a little, little bit of shade that way and got some air from being right underneath the hatch. So when you got the bad weather, you were probably wet all the time, uh, at least when you're on deck. But you were able to dry off when you went down below? Yeah, I mean, that, that was the beauty of being in the tropics is that any, any venture out on deck on cookie typically out at sea you do get wet unless it's blowing less than a force three um anything above that and you get wet so in the tropics uh, a lot of times you pretty much just naked jumping out on deck and tying reefs in sails or adjusting course or changing the wet, wet wind vane from one side to the other that sort of thing um and as soon as you get down below you just grab i, I used to have about um half a dozen towels stationed on each side that I just mopped myself off with and any water that I brought in with me and that way I kept kept it dry down below and kept myself reasonably dry so my little forays on deck I'd expect to get wet and then just dry off as I went further south obviously you know I had to start piling on the layers and the wet weather gear and that sort of thing and um, and for I think half of the voyage down to New Zealand I was still surviving on on going out on deck with with a t-shirt and wet weather jacket, but but bare legs, so that it meant that it was just quite quick and easy to chuck on a jacket, wriggle into it down below, and then jump out on deck to attend uh, to the to the sailing needs. Um, and when I'm sailing offshore, like most cruisers do, I'm not uh, really hand steering at all. Um, in fact, I, I never hand steer out out in ocean. Everything's done with the uh, with the boat on uh, on self steering. So you're just jumping out on deck to uh, to tend to course changes or sail changes and that sort of thing. That's the way I am. I'm a terrible helmsman. I don't like to be at the helm. I, I my mind wanders too much, and suddenly I'm going <laughs> off course. I know whenever I get That's... new whenever I get new crew on my boat, uh, there's always this desire to hand steer, and I said, oh, okay, okay, if you really must, okay, here you go. But they never steer as well as my uh, as well as vanity does if it, there's any wind or or my electric auto helm if there's there's not we just t- take a lot longer when people start hand steering on my boat especially if i start hand steering because i'm a, yeah i'm a terrible yeah. helmsman yeah I, I quite like hand steering if if you've got a lot of wind and it's a and it's a day sail and it's exciting you can see where you're going to or there's 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 um land around or landmarks to sort of gauge your progress and that sort of thing but otherwise, no, it's it's no fun at sea. <laughs> yeah, not for days and days and days, yeah. And, uh, uh, do you have much weather helm with your boat? I, my boat has a lot of weather helms, so getting hand steering gets pretty exhausting. But I would I would assume you don't have much weather helm with uh, with with Cookie. No, not much at all. I mean, she's got obviously got two two rudders um, in the back, and she's got uh, about uh, six foot long tillers. Uh, so the leverage is great. Most of the time, you can just sort of hold the tiller link bar with just two fingers and and steer that way. Um, and and all of the time that she's under weather helm, of course, it took me a long time to to learn the the, the balance between the, the the wind vane and the um, and and the boat uh, and, and how to sail it and how to balance it out. So 
Really, I'd say sailing out at sea with Cookie, she's very under under canvas most of the time. It takes very little effort to push the boat along at five to six knots, and uh, and so therefore it's very easy to balance out the boat and put more headsail up or or reef the main and just take the pressure off the uh, off tillers and keep the boat on track. So so yeah, she doesn't have much weather helm at all. All right, so let's get back to the sail trip from from Rarotonga down to I guess where you headed to the Bay of Islands in New Zealand, or where were you headed? Yeah, actually heading straight for Auckland uh, was my was my destination. To oh. had my friends there, and it was a good uh, point to 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 get to and clear customs and meet up with my friends. I had somewhere to stay with them for a little while, and and then I could sort of get the lay of the land and find my feet and and start looking for work and all that sort of thing. So yeah, Auckland was the, uh, was the destination. And I started doing a bit of a, a curved track, sort of heading west before starting to head directly southwest towards um, Auckland and, and, and the North Island. So um, we, we, took, we ticked along, we got a, a frontal through come, through, come, come along and it wasn't too, uh, too boisterous, you know, wind speeds were probably up to about 25 knots or so in the front. Um, and uh, we were making fairly good time. One really black night, we had a bit of a um, incident where the 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 net that uh, strings between the hulls goes right from the from the stern all the way to the bow as a big trampoline, and uh, it was fastened in the corner of the sterns through a big eye bolt on each stern, and one of them sheared off one night with an almighty almighty bang and. So I jumped out on deck with the with the torch and just found that the the inflatable dinghy that's all wrapped up and tied to the back of the net was dragging behind by its painter, which was still tied on to the uh, to the net. And other other things that I tie on the back net were sort of just dragging along. So I had to sort of act quite quickly to save some of the gear, drag down sail and and that sort of thing. And it was all in the sort of blackest of nights. There was no moon. There was a really low, low-level um, cloud. It was blowing about 20 knots, I think. And so it's a bit of a mission to do all of that. And uh, unfortunately, one of my cans of cooking fuel uh, ended up floating away. So that took me down to just one five-liter jerry can of uh, of petrol, uh, of gasoline for my stove. So, uh, but that that you know, I calculated that would still be enough to to get me down to uh, to New Zealand. So. All was not lost. I just lashed up the netting with a, with a good old um, rope lashing in the corner there, and that took care of that. But um, later on in the voyage, it was to play out that that loss of that jerry can would be really quite dire because my other jerry can, I didn't realize, but the plastic lid had obviously got tightened down too much and had split. So it was it, it, on every sunny day as it heated up, there was quite a lot of fuel evaporating away slowly. And I didn't really notice it because it's out on deck and it's uh, being, you know, it's very airy and it's being blown away. So I didn't notice it until about, uh, I think it was about two weeks out from New Zealand going for a fill up of my, my, my stove and uh, noticed that there was hardly any fuel left in this can. So it did get a bit, a uh, bit of a worry. And in fact, I did run out of cooking fuel about uh, 10 days out from, uh, from New Zealand. And, uh, so how did, situation. You, how did you deal with that? Well, at the time, it was all it was pretty hard because uh, as, I, as I went past the halfway point, which is the Kermadec Islands, there's a, there's a little outpost. I think, again, um, the New Zealand um, government has got a little uh, meteorological station out there or something like that. And uh, so I went past those islands. I even you know, was contemplating anchoring there. But that was one of the first bad fronts that started to come through. Um, there's a depression on its way. The barometer was dropping like a stone. And we had northerly winds with big black skies. And I thought, I, be- I better get out of here and get some sea room. So we, we had a- continued on our sort of westerly direction from there. And, um, and that was our first good kicking from a um, – we had, we had three, three depressions come through in the last sort of uh, two weeks the halfway point and um you know they got successively stronger and stronger each time but um but in the end i you know i ended up i think about 10 days 
was it? No, about eight days, right? Um, lying a hull or on the sea anchor when once the fronts had come through, because wind speeds would get up in the front itself up to about 50, even 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 more, 50 knots or plus. And uh, with Cookie, I didn't have storm sails. I had uh, double reef main and a, and a reefed working jib, which was about as low as I could go. And um, so really, that was way too much sail to have up in those sorts of conditions. So I was forced really just to sort of put, put the boat into survival mode and, and just wait it out. Um, but once the front had come through and the sou'westers were blowing, they seemed to just blow day after day at about 40 knots or so uh, in their wintertime sort of boisterous sort of condition. And again, that was just too much for us to fight our way into and make progress. So we just had to have a lot of patience and um, a lot of fortitude just to sort of bob, bob away, lose ground by about 20 miles a day being blown backwards and just try and wait it out and, and have some sort of belief that <laughs> the depression would pass eventually and we'd get a small break to make up the lost ground again. Now, was this was this south of the Tropic of Capricorn you're talking about, or was it north of that, that you had this bad weather? Now, this would have been, um, let me think, this would have been, I mean, the Kerbadecs are about um, halfway from uh, Rarotonga down to, to the north of the North Island. So I'd say, you know, I don't have a chart in front of me, um, France, but I'd say it was probably around about the um, 27 degrees um, sort of latitude. About that. Yes, about that sort of um, latitude. And and so when once my cooking fuel ran out, I, I, was, I was in this state of having to just fight these storms as well. And so, you know, I had a bit of time on my hands, actually, because we just, I was just cooped up down below, either on the sea anchor or laying a hull. And uh, it was pretty violent motion at times. But um, on the whole, there's not much to do except just wait. So I, I experimented by taking one of my kerosene lamps down below, my little hurricane lantern. And I cut the arms off either side of the of the upper body, and just see. So all I had was like a, a round base, and the wick uh, that came out of it. And I sort of put that underneath the the grill on the on the cooker, and lighted that, and and just to see if I could heat up a, a, a pot of food <laughs> with the heat from the <laughs> a paraffin lamp, um, a kerosene lamp, and it would slowly bring bring the temperature up a little bit but of course you, you probably you, you, you know it yourself as soon as you turn the wick up on a on a kerosene lamp it just gives off so much black soot so within a day or two i was covered in soot my wet weather gear was covered everything seemed to be covered in soot so that was even worse for morale so i said oh the heck with this uh, slight warming of food i'll do without so what i was having to do is because of course by that stage of the journey I'd eaten all of the fresh, fresh good support. So it was down to just eating pasta and rice and, and some lentils and, and uh, maybe a tin, of, uh, a tin of food. But I think by that stage, most of my tins had been used up. So what I started doing was just taking the lentils and making bean sprouts with them. So just soaking them, putting them in a bowl with, on top of some uh, paper towel and, and letting them sprout for a couple of days and then of course there was a little bit of goodness and they would soften up as well but by shooting so i could eat those um and what i found with the pasta is if you just soak it all day in in room temperature water then it uh it gets to the point where it, it pretty much reconstitutes it's like just like cold pasta so that was okay but then when the pasta ran out <laughs> i was down to i was down to rice <laughs> and there ain't no two ways about it really whatever you do to rice it still stays crunchy if you don't cook it so i would i would soak this rice all day long and even two days at a time and it got to the point where i could chew it but uh i you know i it just wasn't really palatable so i was just eating it uh, to at least put something in my belly and, uh, and put some curry powder on top of it or whatever I had left it's sort of try and give it some taste so so yeah the situation was getting a little bit more depressing and a bit more dire it wasn't an emergency at all I mean the boat wasn't breaking up we were getting knocked about pretty badly 
and um, and every now and again a, a wave will cream us on the side with an almighty bang, and uh, and pretty much the white water would go right over the deck. But uh, but the boat was was built strong. She was taking it okay. Um, I just had to try and remain calm and, and keep the patience to to just make progress whenever the fronts died down. Now there really wasn't a bail. I mean, I see there's the Tongan Islands up north, but you were you were going south, quite a ways south of the of the Tongan Islands, and yeah. there's, there's really not any really any bailout spot between Rarotonga and and New Zealand. Is there? I mean, you said you did have some islands, but I'm looking on the Google Earth, and it really doesn't look like there's much in between those two locations. Uh, there's, a, there's those two little islands called the Kermadec Islands, and uh, and they're but they're very steep too, with um, big cliffs and that sort of thing, and no real good um, good anchorages. Certainly not in in strong northwest or or southwest winds. So so no, I I, I could have effectively if I'd really got um, severe weather, I would have just had to stay on a drogue or sea anchor and and carried on. Excuse me, carried on north up to back up to sort of area like Tonga or Fiji or somewhere like that, and just hole up for a while and wait for for weather to go carry on. But because I was so close, literally, I was by the time I got the really bad fronts, the second one that came through, um, I just had about um, four days or three days of of real screaming southwesters afterwards, and. Uh, you know, then then it would die down, and I'd I'd have about a day between fronts to make make some progress. So, so it'd take me about half that day to make up the lost ground that I'd just been drifting backwards, and then I'd be able to chip ahead and make a bit more progress. So uh, so I did that uh, about two three times, and uh, and the last front I remember actually I was off, not too far away from from Auckland. I could see Great Barrier Island in the distance. And uh, a few other islands as well. So I knew I was close. I was probably only about sort of 40 miles away. And then the front came through and the sea turned pretty much white. And uh, we just had to repeat the process and just take down sails. And I think for another two days, we were just um, drifting towards the northeast and uh, having to having to wait it out. So it was a real hard slog uh, and, a, and, a, and a sort of a real test of, test of my sort of fortitude, I think, uh, best way to put it uh, to get down to New Zealand and eventually you know we we, we got that uh, slight break um, between the fronts and actually made a landfall just um, off the Poor Knights Islands which is off Whangarei which is about halfway between Auckland and the Bay of Islands and that's where we that's where we made our landfall eventually and I I, I pulled in there and, and slept for the night and uh, and then we got uh, got back down to Auckland, I think on a on a full day sail the next day, and uh, and we made it in. Yeah, that must have been and a we big. We made it uh, onto the front. Big relief to make it in there. That then I bet it was great. Absolutely, yeah. Well, there was an, you could tell there was another front brewing. Um, the wind was starting to go more northwest again, and the barometer was dropping. So it was a good 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 that we made it in during that time because there was another another sort of gale on its way. But um, but after that, uh, I, I went, um, I think a few months later, I sort of went along to the multi-hull yacht club of, uh, of Auckland and did a talk there. And um, it was also following another talk from a catamaran sailor. Uh, there's loads of cats obviously out and out in the land down under. And there's these guys that were sailing down from Tonga about the same time in a, um, I think it was a Great Barrier Express, about a 28-foot... 20, tenant catamaran and a bit more of a racy high-sided uh, cat and they were in the same conditions i was in and of course they got beaten up really badly and ended up having to get towed in um to the north island right up the tip uh, by a uh, fisherman or someone like that they had to put out a mayday because they really were were getting beaten up badly and felt like the boat was going to pull apart i think on them so it all depended although i was in a catamaran it you know, really made sense to be out there in something that was built strong and not too lightweight. So I'm looking at Auckland, and I guess you came in the uh, the the east side of Auckland into that bay. There is that is that correct? Yes, yeah. The um, you've got um, the Great Barrier Island. You've got Little Barrier Island that creates what they call the Hauraki Gulf, 
on the eastern side of uh, of Auckland, and that's that's the coastline I came down and and into uh, to get to to Auckland. Yeah, the west coast is a um, fairly untenable. It's it does have a harbour on the west side, but um, most cruising yachts and all that sort of thing tend to sort of stay on the, uh, the east coast because New Zealand uh, does have prevailing westerlies. Ah, okay, okay. It'll be huge marina there. I'm looking at the Google Earth. There's a huge marina as you come into that bay. And yeah, a yeah. Lot, a lot of marinas too, so. That's right, yeah. Auckland is known as the city of sails, and it seems to be that um, most people have access, at least if not the, their own boat, um, either a little tinny to go fishing or a um, sailboat to, to enjoy the islands and that sort of thing. So, yeah, while I was, while I was out in New Zealand, I certainly got a, a good good chance to see uh new zealand life afloat and uh, they do love their boating out there that's for sure now when you got to auckland were you able to anchor for free or did you have to go into a, a marina and and pay for the marina now what i did was i had um my friends um, lived on the north side of, of auckland harbour in a place called devonport uh, like a suburb and um they were members of a sailing club there so we, we, we managed to sort of find some contacts for me to rent a mooring. <clears throat> so I put the book cookie on a mooring there. And then all the while I was living in, in Auckland, which was close to three years in the end, um, France, I, I had cookie in various spots around the outer fringe of the main harbour there um, in, in places where they had mooring fields, uh, good sturdy mooring. And the, a lot of boats kept their, a lot of people kept their boats even in winter on moorings in the harbour and just made sure they had very good ground tackle, good uh, good heavy heavy duty gear to be able to survive the gales when they blowed through. Yeah, as I zoom in on here, there's lots and lots of mooring balls up through there. I can see that. So you yeah. say, how, now this was the end of the, really the big first half of your voyage and say you took a big break at this point in time, you took a long time to, to get to know friends and did you reacquaint yourself with your girlfriend and that sort of thing? And how did that go? Yeah, yeah, yeah we, I, my girlfriend Lara at the time, uh, we reacquainted and I started life ashore. I, I'd got that far and uh, that was a big milestone reached. Um, it wasn't around the world, but I said at the time, I felt like I'd, I'd reached a paradise. I, I fell in love with New Zealand and the, and the way of life down there. And I, um, hung up my sea boots for a while and thought, no, this is, this is a good place to park. And I got uh, some good work coming in. I started uh, doing some boat building work, uh, some pretty exciting projects, building big race boats and that sort of thing. And um, doing some other work for people uh, on warm cats and that sort of thing. So there was no shortage of work and uh, it was a good place to be because of course, New Zealand is the uh, is the land of adventure. If you want to go skiing or blackwater rafting under under cave systems or or jet boating or, or or whatever you want to do, bungee jumping at the time, that sort of thing, there was loads going on. So I had a lot of fun down there, and um, and in the end, I got out of boat building. I decided that uh, I was fed up with being sticky and, and fibers sticking into my skin. <laughs> itchy, so I, I, itchy I went, all the time, right? Yeah. Itchy all the time. Itchy, yeah, that's it. And so what I uh, I did was I, I made a choice to get out of boat building, but I didn't know what I was going to do next. So so I volunteered for the sail training organization down there, which is called the uh, Spirit of Adventure. And they took out uh, sail, uh, school leavers, about 16-year-olds, on 10-day voyages. And it was a fantastic program to be part of. It was very obviously very positive and very um, um, inspirational to the kids. And so by just volunteering and being part of the team, it, it had the same effect on me. And so I knew exactly what I wanted to do, which was to work my way and get some commercial sea time up and become a second mate or first mate on, on these voyages and have some fun and be part of a very worthwhile um, sort of organization. And so... I started, I did about four trips with them and then went around the, the harbour front looking for, I guess, deckhand jobs on ferries or, or fishing boats or that sort of thing. And uh, in the end, walked into a yacht charter company and asked for some skipper work. And they put me to work straight down into the uh, bilges, turning boats around and preparing them for the next charter and doing all of the mechanical repairs to begin with. And, uh, and so started about a 10-year career. <laughs> Going off on a tangent into the uh, into the charter industry, 
So, uh, so I never did actually get back to the to the sail training organization. I ended up um, getting involved with the charter yachts. And so, so, so this was all in New Zealand, and this was over about a three-year period of time that you're doing this. Yeah, in, in total, I was in New Zealand for nearly four years. Okay, um, I was about four three years. Year, three years in Auckland, and then my my girlfriend and I we decided we were kind of heading in slightly different directions, and so we parted uh, in good spirits and and decided to um, go our separate ways. And so I I moved straight back aboard Cookie to to save some money and. Um, Ended up doing some mod cons to her and, and spend a bit of money making up a big uh, harbor tent to go from one side to the other so I could live aboard without getting wet, <laughs> going from one hull to the other. And I put a solar panel and a stereo and and even electric lights on the boat. Why me? <laughs> <laughs> so we, we hit the high life, I tell you. <laughs> and, uh, and so it became a lot easier to live aboard aboard the boat and so when I was, I was about I think a few months in in Auckland Harbour living on, in a marina on Cookie where I could just step ashore and, and do my nine to five job and that sort of thing and then um, with the same company I got a posting to go up to the Bay of Islands and spend a season up there being the assistant manager of the of the charter base up there so again I sailed Cookie up and she was my base and lived aboard um, and uh, by having a charter company it was great because you know they had showers and things like that in in the in the sort of um in the admin block so i could have my showers each morning early before work started and that sort of thing so it all worked out really well well and let me, let me being let, around let me ask you a question on the bay of islands where were you stationed in the bay of islands what what city there's a little harbor called opua ah which is did you know, yeah. did you happen to, I don't know, let's see, what year was this? What, uh, about what year was this? This was in 95, 1995. All right. So did you, uh, did you, did you meet my buddy Doug Schmuck at Doug's Opua Boatyard? Oh, heck yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Over there opposite the main, uh, the main wharf there. Uh, yeah, I remember Doug well. He had a lovely little, um. Bristol Channel gaff, Cutter. Gaff. Yeah, a gaff rigger with a with a big bowsprit on it with green green canvas on it, I think, something like that. Yeah. I well, remember Doug well. He was a good chap. <laughs> well, I consider Doug a good friend of mine. He's a guy that took me for a sail on his boat when I was looking at getting a Bristol Channel cutter. He lived in Costa Mesa at the time. And then mm-hmm. he eventually set sail for down to New Zealand and eventually ended down in uh in uh, in Opua and bought that boat yard and never came back to California after that and I haven't okay, I haven't okay. seen him I haven't seen him probably in fifteen years but but I think about him a lot because he's the one that uh, took me sailing became a friend and uh, oh, fantastic yeah. yeah yeah have you have you been down to visit him down at in Opua then I've never been to New Zealand it's on my list of places to go it's definitely on my list of places to go but no I've never been there. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's no, a super spot, and uh, and the Bay of Islands is is literally as it says. It's um it's these secluded little um little harbors like Opua, and then you've got Russell um a little bit further up the sort of estuary, and then it opens out into this bay where you've got these string of islands, about half a dozen islands with three or four anchorages on each island, and um, and lovely sandy white beaches and that sort of thing. Good fishing just offshore, that sort of thing. So, yeah, a very popular spot for, for sailors in New Zealand. And also cruisers, they would pull in because Opua was a port of entry and the customs and immigration there. So boats leaving and uh, and arriving would um, would always stop in normally to Opua there. Um, and so I started I started meeting up with these um, round-the-world sailors that, were, that had come down for the summer season escape all the cyclones up in Fiji and Tonga and that sort of thing and uh, and enjoy New Zealand. And then they were making their plans to head on um, the next winter and uh, sail north again out of the cold from New Zealand and, and carry on their circumnavigation. So talking with a lot of these guys um, put the inspiration back in me to, to start to finish off the job that I'd started uh, four years ago. So you probably met Larry and Lynn Party as well then while you were there. I don't think I actually met them um, per se. No, I, I, I never actually met up with them. Um, I, I kind of saw one of the Wanderer boats, I think Wanderer 5, one of the Hiscox old boats that was down in um, 
in Fongaray at the time. I think it, they'd obviously sold it on. Um, but no, Lynn and Larry, I didn't, didn't actually get to meet them. Uh, oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I know that's their home base as well. So anyway, that's I, great. Small world. I'm glad you met up with Doug. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Doug, no, Doug was a great guy. Um, and uh, he helped me out a couple of times. And uh, he, was always, uh, he was always very friendly and very helpful. Yeah. Yeah, I'd I wonder what, wonder what happened. Wonder what happened to Doug. Whether he's still there or whether he moved on. No, as far as I understand, he's still down there. I do a Google search on him every now and then, and he's still got his boat yard, and he's getting involved in a little bit of the, the local politics. Uh, but uh, every now and then, I'll do a Google search, and I'll right. I'll see his name still pop up a little bit. But uh, I haven't I haven't talked to him. I don't even have his email address. I'd like to keep in touch with him because. I do consider him a good friend. He's he's come to Salt Lake and he skied with me, and you know we've we've hung out together when we've had the opportunity. So uh, he was such a fun character. In fact, parts of my boat came off his boat. My uh, my CQR anchor on my boat was one that he took off his boat and said, "Here, I want a smaller anchor. You take this one." I said, "Okay, I want a bigger anchor. <laughs> I'll take right. that yeah. one." So, but uh, yeah, anyway, yeah. small world. <laughs> So let's let's well, stop let let's stop there for today, and then we'll uh, continue your voyage in the next interview. How does that sound? That sounds fine, Franz. Yeah, that sounds good. Get the juices flowing and the uh, the, the memories going for the next leg. All right. Thanks a lot, Rory. Keep in touch. Fine, Franz. Take okay. care. Bye bye. Yeah, cheers. Bye now. Okay, I don't think I'm really going to add much more to this interview. I don't have much to say. I've got lots of things to do today. But, hey, if you like this podcast, go in and write a review on iTunes. And if you want to sign up for the email list, I'll send you eight free lessons on the Sailing Learn to Sail audio lessons. All right, no more than that today. Thanks for listening. Get out there and go sailing. Joe, do you have something to tell me? No, I don't think so. I just got off the telephone with Bill Rutherford. Princeton can use a guy like Joe. What? Princeton can use a guy like Joe. His exact words. That's unbelievable. You're as good as in. I knew you could do it. Haven't I been telling you, every once in a while, you just got to say, what the heck, and take some chances. You are so right. You made me very proud. I was just thinking where we might be 10 years from now, you know? <laughs>